If you have a Bible, would you like to turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 2? If you don't have a Bible with you but would like to follow in a copy, just raise a hand and one will be brought to you. Just keep it up for a moment so it can be seen and then it's already on its way. We're going to be looking together at um, Revelation chapter 2 from verse 18. We've been uh, in a series now looking at the, the messages that Jesus wants to share to seven churches and we're going to arrive at um, the church in Thyatira today. So Jesus, um, in the first century, wanting to get the attention and speak to and encourage uh, his church. These churches were in um, Asia Minor, which is now kind of modern day Turkey. Um, so they were speaking into a specific situation then, but they speak into our situation as well. These seven different messages have relevance for every church throughout all the ages. So let's look um, Revelation 2, uh, verse 18. To the angel of the church in Thyatira writes, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you're now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have, against, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I've given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely, unless they repent of her ways." I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds. And I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I'll not impose any other burden on you. Only hold on to what you have until I come. To him who overcomes and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He will dash them to pieces like pottery. Just as I have received authority from my father, I will also give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So there again, we have it right at the beginning there, this message to the angel of the church in Thyatira, a specific message to this specific congregation in Turkey. But then right at the end, in verse 29, we see, uh, him who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. God wants to get the attention of his church. As we've we've looked through these messages to the different churches, um, these are coming from Jesus, the Son of God, who now is seated in all heavenly majesty and glory. We saw that back in chapter 1, this vision of Jesus, enthroned, absolutely glorious, radiant and majestic, the living one. He's died, but he's rose again. And now he's seated in a throne in all glory for all time. These messages are coming from him. But let's remember, these messages are coming from the one who died on the cross, who wanted to show how much he loved his church, that he, he went to the cross 
and he suffered and he died. He shed his own blood um, to show how much he loves us. And so these messages come to the church as though Jesus is showing us his church is the focus of his special attention. And even as we've been worshipping God this morning and these different words of encouragement come, it's almost as though God is just saying, Church, my, my, you're my people. My people who I dearly love. My, my, special, my special attention is on you. I, I care about you. These churches, many of them, they were going through tough and challenging situations. The Son of God steps in. The Son of God walks amongst his church. Someone will say, no, I know what's going on. I know what's it, what it's like where you live. I know what you're doing. I know um, what you have to put up with. You're my people. Know this. I'm, I'm with you. I love you with a never dying, never giving up, never fading love. That elastic, it, it's not breaking. No, my love is still for you. And so Jesus comes to us and he brings encouragement. He brings that sense of wanting to, uh, he, he wants to know his, his people are protected, whatever is threatening them. He's delivering them from every foe. He's, he's guiding them. He's leading them. He's eager to bring encouragement. Jesus is eager to spend time with his church. Jesus is is eager, not reluctant. You don't just kind of post a letter through the door and run, and then maybe one day it gets replied to. No, Jesus comes and he walks amongst his church and he says, you're my people, I love you, I want to bring encouragement to you. And that's what he, what he does when he speaks uh, to, these, to these churches as we see. He's also, because the church is the focus of his special attention, as well as being eager to bring encouragement, he's also eager to deal with sin that pollutes, things that damage. So it's not always comfortable or convenient to be in God's church because sometimes he comes and because he loves us, because he cares for us, because he's got great plans for us, he just begins to highlight things that this needs dealing with. That's not good. And it, it flows from his love, but it doesn't always mean it's easy and comfortable for us to be. Sometimes that can be our experience of church life. Oh, this is great. Oh, this is wonderful. And then we can start to wobble because it's like God just starts to put his finger on something and we think, well, oh, maybe this isn't such a great place to be. No, this is a very good place to be. To be in God's church, to be in God's family, to be subject to his special care and attention. But... Not always comfortable. Jesus describes himself here as the, uh, these are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. His eyes are like blazing fire. It gives that sense of, what well, Jesus, he sees everything. Nothing escapes his attention, the good and the not so good. He, he's the one we'll find out later on who, who even searches hearts and minds. He's, he's totally aware not just of what we do, but of our motives and our thoughts and our attitudes, our ambitions and our aspirations. He sees, he sees it all. Uh, nothing escapes his attention and he, he sees the, the sin that can be lurking. So Jesus loves his church and because he loves his church, 
He gives special attention, special encouragement, sometimes with an uncomfortable feel as well as he puts his finger on things. Now last time we looked at the church in Pergamum, this time we're in church in Thyatira, next time we're going to look at the church in Sardis. These three churches, others as well, are what I call the churches of the mixed bag. Um, In other words, you, you kind of put your hand in, you take something out and there's something excellent, there's something quality um, you might remember I used the illustration last time of the, the bag of revels, um, this kind of bag of different chocolates, and uh, inside there are some that you like. Um, certainly that's my experience anyway. There are some that you like. Ah, chocolate-coated toffee or a Malteser, wonderful. Um, I was sharing last time that for me at least, reaching your hand in and reaching out the, the coffee-flavored chocolate is, is, uh, is not so great. I don't like that so much. Um, but I discover that lots of you do. So I realize like, I've got to change the analogy somehow. Um, but churches that are a mixed bag, they've got some great things. God commends them. Jesus encourages them and says, well done. There are loads of things he says uh, well done for in this church. And so the question leads us to this. Well, what's in the bag this time? What's in the bag of Thyatira? What's, what's going on in this church? Jesus comes and he says in verse 19, well done. A massive well done. I know your deeds, your love and your faith, your service and perseverance, and that you're now doing more than you did at first. I know your deeds. I know your, your love, he says. This church possesses, if you cast your mind back to the, the first church we looked at in Ephesus, this church possessed what Ephesus lacked, love. In Ephesus, their love for God and their love for people, their love for each other, had grown cold. But here in Thyatira, there's this, just this love. There's an, I kind of imagine you turn up at this church and there's, there's just an eagerness to worship God and enjoy his presence together. And an eagerness to, uh, just to be welcoming, to welcome people. They're a church of great love. They're just on the lookout. How can, we, how can we bless God? How can we bless each other? Can I, can I babysit or whatever? Can I, um, you've just had another child. I, well, can I give you a meal? Uh, I just want to love. Uh, are you new here? C- come on in. Why don't you come and sit over here with us? That would be fine. Um, I imagine you go to Fire Tyra and um, you get just a spectacular welcome. Um, very much like here. Uh, you get an awesome welcome. And maybe there's like, it's like afterwards, like, just like, have a donut. It's like, wow, you're a church, and that's okay? You like donuts? Wonderful. What, a, what, a, what a welcome. Um, what a loving church. The worship starts, and there's no reticence. Everyone's just enjoying, lifting up God's name. And uh, it's just kind of a, a happiness, a, a lightness of heart. In, in Ephesus, you kind of got the impression... They kind of knew their stuff, but they're just all a bit hard and all a bit cold and uh, they don't really pay attention much to each other and maybe they don't pay that much attention to God. They, they kind of like looking at the Word, but they're just cold. This church couldn't be more uh, different. Um, a, a great place to be. This church is one that's not only loving, but it's full of faith. So they believe God. They take God at his word. They, they're expecting God to do great things in their midst. They're expecting we're going to step out. 
in, uh, in new things, and we're expecting that God is going to show that he is God. And God is going to um, do wonderful things. This is a church it's full of faith. It's, it's therefore believing in God. It's also believing for people, believing that in God uh, we can be changed, we can be transformed, we can be set free. Our lives aren't determined by our upbringing or whatever. We can, we can, uh, we can know a new life. And so everyone is welcome. Everyone is, is uh, included and drawn in to this kind of dynamic, loving family. A family that's eager to, to kind of serve the world out there. Acts of kindness. Projects that are seeking to bless uh, the poor, those with disadvantage. Just love, faith, service, perseverance. It's just oozing out of everything they do. They're, they're doing more than they did at first as well. That sense of which you know, momentum is, is kind of developing. Um, they've moved on. There's a kind of visionary church that's, that's growing. A church that's doing, in many ways, incredibly, incredibly well. And Jesus says, well done. This is, this is excellent. Again, Jesus gives his special attention to the church. And there's stuff that maybe isn't widely known, but God sees loving acts of service. God knows steps of courageous faith. God sees and he says, this is good. Well done. Now keep going. Your perseverance, so impressive. Heaven shares its perspective on this church and it's good. Here's here's what's in the bag then. Love, faith, service, perseverance, even more than they were doing at first. But we do need to return to the bag. All this good stuff, all this wonderful stuff, can be um, is is being threatened. Is potentially it's getting it's getting polluted. There's something sinister that's going on. Um, and rather than the bag of revels, I've moved on from that illustration. I'm going to. Um, educate, educate this morning in the realm of children's board game. Uh, we have a game at home which is called Tummy Ache. And it's a, it's a card-based game. And the aim of the game is to collect five cards, kind of different items of food, um, a, a kind of a healthy, balanced meal. So you have a drink. You have like a kind of carbohydrate of some sort. You, have some, you might have some chicken or some fish or uh, some good protein on the plate. Um, some salad or some vegetables, and a nice dessert as well. And you've got to collect these five cards. But as you pick up a card and you choose one at random, you might get one that says tummy ache. And you look on the card and you say, well, well that, that kind of looks okay. You know, uh, some salad or whatever, or um, so, uh, a nice cut of meat or whatever. But it, it kind of strikes you straight away. It says tummy ache at the top of the card. And then on the card, you might also see Something that you never want to see on your plate. You never want to see a spider with a spider's web. I would assume. Uh, I think you, you don't want to see um, slugs on the salad. There was salad. That was, that was good salad, but there's now a slug on it. Uh, or my personal favorite is, is the glass of drink. Think, oh, that looks nice. It's like a Ribena. Yeah, I, I like that. Kind of fruity. Um, and yet there are tadpoles swimming in it. You think, yeah, that... I don't really want to go there. Uh, that's not, not nice. So 
Jesus brings his attention to something in the life of the church, which is like getting that kind of tummy ache card. There's something good there. There's some good ingredients, but actually there's a slug. There's something that is seeking to pollute and could actually ruin everything that is going on in that church and threaten um, the kind of the purposes of God. So love is strong here. It's this welcoming church. They, they'll, they'll, welcome, they'll welcome anyone. They'll welcome anything. Perhaps also, in a sense, the flip side of that has just become the problem. They've become welcoming to something they shouldn't do. Whereas actually sometimes it's right to show discernment. This is like, you know, you don't, you don't ask a babysitter to, uh, you don't ask a stranger to babysit your kids. That wouldn't be good. You, you kind of like, you want to discern things. This, this church maybe is just not that discerning. And so they've welcomed in influences into the church that are not just, you know, well, I don't like coffee, chocolate. That's not my personal preference in the life of the church. It's, it, it's not to do with personal preference. This is to do with things that are, that are toxic, something that is toxic. Now, like the church in Pergamum, on the surface, the problem is basically the same. Um, Sexual immorality and eating food sacrificed to pagan idols. So, church in Pergamum and also this church here in Thyatira, um, they're basically merging in with the world and therefore they're going along to pagan temples and they're taking part in the worship service uh, of those pagan temples. Only problem is, uh, well, it's to a pagan god, and it involves sexual immorality. That's how those gods are worshipped. Um, and it also involves uh, eating food, taking part in um, a ritual sacrifice to other gods. And God grabs the attention of the church in Pergamum and this church in Thyatira and says, that's not great. So, on the surface, it's the same issue. But it's coming from a slightly different route. It's coming from a slightly different place. So in the previous church, the issue was they had people holding to the, talk, holding to the teaching of Balaam. And we looked at this Old Testament character called Balaam. And we saw basically when you see his name, it's almost like shorthand for the word compromise. So they were getting compromised. They were just compromising with the culture around them. And so then presumably in that church, there would be men and women in that church who, if you like, were adopting the same character of Balaam. Balaam said, it's okay. Try, try, and, entice, try and entice them um, into worshipping false gods and getting into sexual relationships that they shouldn't do. That was Balaam's line of things. It's fine. It's okay. Just mix with the culture. That was Balaam's teaching. And so you probably have men and women in that church who were following and encouraging that kind of lifestyle, that kind of teaching. Now here in Thyatira, the problem is explained by reference to a different character in the Old Testament. This character is called Jezebel. Now that, that name um, is like being kind of like woken up by machine gun fire in your bedroom. Um, it's like a, a massive shocking alarm bell uh, to anyone who knows the Old Testament accounts of what Jezebel was 
like. And if Balaam stands for compromise, we can understand Jezebel, by another word, control. The character or the spirit of Jezebel, one way or another, is to try and bring ungodly, illegitimate control. A power play to try and seize authority in the local church to distort what God's got planned, to lead the church astray. And so, in general, like with Balaam, it's possible for men and women within any church um, to demonstrate the same character or the same spirit um, as Jezebel. So it's highly unlikely that in Thyatira there was actually somebody called Jezebel in that church, but that name is being used to get the attention of the church and say, hang on a minute, this is not good. You've, you've welcomed something that you shouldn't. You should not welcome uh, the, the character or the, the spirit of, uh, of Jezebel into your church community because it's, um, uh, it's controlling, it's divisive, it's manipulative, and it threatens to, to pollute the church. All these good ingredients, all these excellent things, all these things the church is getting commended for, and heaven goes, that's great. All vulnerable, all threatened by a, a spirit of Jezebel. So we need to just look back and say, well, what, what is the character of Jezebel? What is the, the personality? What is the spirit of, uh, of this person in the Old Testament? We'll look at a number of things. Firstly, the character of Jezebel is seductive. Now, we won't look at every reference in detail, um, but you can read a whole number of chapters in 1 Kings. We'll look at a few places. Uh, we'll look in 1 Kings 16, and we'll look at a few verses from verse 30. It says there, Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the law than any of those before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nabat, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole and did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than did all the kings of Israel before him. This is not a good time in the life of Israel, in the history of Israel. And Jezebel, uh, daughter of a king from another nation, another nation where Baal is worshipped. Baal is a fertility god. Um, uh, and Jezebel um, and marries Ahab, the king of Israel. And presumably, this just comes in with kind of seductive suggestions. It's, it's okay. Ahab, it's, it's okay to worship Baal. You, you can worship your god, but you can worship my god as well. And so that, that element of compromise and seduction, that does come in. Um, it's a kind of form of teaching that wants to just help us to understand that it's, it's okay to have our cake and eat it. It's okay. If, if, you, if you really want it, 
that's all right. It's, it's okay to sin. God understands. He loves to forgive anyway. He's, I thought your God is gracious and compassionate. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in love. You can do this and get away with it. He knows. He knows that we're attracted to each other. He understands. And you get forgiven for it anyway. Why don't we just dot, dot, dot? A kind of seductive form of teaching. And we see that kind of happening in Revelation in verse 20, where it says there, by her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. It's okay, everyone. Come on. Compromise. Sleep around. It might not just be seductive to do with um, relationships or to do with um, sexual immorality. It can be to do with, with money that might affect business. Oh, it's okay. That, that's, that's called creative bookkeeping. You're, it's okay. Yeah, just, just fudge them a bit. Yeah, just pull the wall over that person's eyes. Don't tell them about that. No, that's, that's fine. Yeah, you, that, that expenses claim, that's, that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, you know, if anyone looks at it too closely, there'll be a problem, but it'll be all right. A kind of a seductive form of, of teaching, and it pollutes the church. It can, pollute, it can even pollute church leaders. Church leaders, there'll be situations where the leader of a church has been seduced. Seduced into sexual sin or maybe financial sin in some way. And then this element of control comes in because that leader, um, having fallen to that sin, then becomes uh, very controlling or manipulative in order to avoid any accountability, an expert wriggler who wants desperately to hold on to the reins of power and so has to increasingly try and cover up, cover up, cover up, deceive, manipulate, keep everyone at arm's length. Seduction. Also, the character of Jezebel is domineering. That name literally means without cohabitation. In other words, no one can live with Jezebel unless they give in to her wishes. And we, we kind of get this clear impression as well from what we see in 1 Kings. In 1 Kings chapter 21, um, in, in verse 25, it's another little summary of Ahab and Jezebel together. It says, it says there, there was never a man like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, urged on by Jezebel, his wife. He behaved in the vilest manner by going after idols, like the Amorites the Lord drove out before Israel. Jezebel will only live with someone like Ahab if she can be the driving force. And so you almost get this impression, Ahab, he's the leader, but he's a weak guy. And so Jezebel says, go on, do that. And so he says, okay, yeah, we'll worship Baal then. Um, fine. No, go further. Oh, okay. Um, but that, that's okay. That's, just, that's, that's what I'm comfortable with. Ahab, go further. And she's the driving force. She's urging. She's pushing this uh, weaker character into sin, into damaging kind of conscience, if you like. She is not the ruler. She was not the ruler of Israel. She was not even an Israelite. She's not the one that God had put in charge, but she acts as though she is. 
And so often, sometimes, a Jezebelic spirit or character tends to increase the tension between men and women. This usurping character comes in. Uh, other men, whether, the, uh, whether it's a man or a woman, with a Jezebelic character, other men around that person will, will look or become weak. They just do as they're told. There's a situation, you can read about it in 1 Kings 21, where Ahab wants to buy a vineyard. He tries to make a deal. Naboth, who owns the vineyard, says, thank you, but no thank you. I'd like to keep hold of my vineyard. He goes home and sulks about it. Jezebel says, that's ridiculous. No king should behave like that. And so she sets in plan emotions. She signs letters on his behalf writes to all the kind of rulers and officials, all the leading men in the city where Naboth live, and says, um, right, have a feast, throw a party, invite Naboth. Make sure two scoundrels, scoundrels are sat right next to him who falsely accuse him of blasphemy. Then take Naboth outside and stone him because he's blasphemed. Only he hadn't blasphemed. That plan happens. Because all those guys just went, oh, okay, yeah. We'll, we'll do what you say. It's kind of afraid to, to kind of go against her su- suggestion. So everyone just goes along with it. So a, a domineering character. Character also that appears spiritual. She calls herself a prophetess. She is, this would be someone who's very quick to tell, to tell you, to tell us, well, well, God has told me, Dot, 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 dot. Here's all my spiritual accomplishments. Be impressed by me. In the Old Testament, Jezebel surrounds herself with prophets who eat at her table, it says in 1 Kings 18. She, she quickly gathers a group around her. But notice again, this, this group of spiritual people are totally dependent on her. They, they eat at her table. Well, you, you wouldn't be opposing someone who feeds you, would you? You would kind of go along with whatever they say. They're dependent upon her. Calls herself a prophetess. Notice God's not saying that. She has to brag. This character has to brag, promote, wants the limelight, wants to shine, wants to be visible and prominent, needs others to recognize how gifted uh, she is. So not a humble woman of God, Seeking to serve God in whichever way he reveals, which may involve prophecy. No, it's, this is not a humble attitude. This is a, it appears spiritual, but it's proud. In Revelation, it also talks about how she um, may have been uh, teaching the so-called deep secrets. It's unlikely that anyone was trying to bring teaching, saying, I just want to tell you about Satan's deep secrets. It's probably more likely that someone was saying, um, I want to teach you about God's deep secrets. Yeah, you can go to the leaders of the church, but it's almost like from them, you'll just get like the GCSE in, uh, in spirituality. If you really want to go on to get like an A-level or a degree, you come to me. Because sometimes that happens, doesn't it? If you, I don't know if you've encountered this or remember this in your own education or you're going through it right now. You learn something in GCSE and then you get to A-level and because it kind of like steps up in complexity, you kind of realize that what you learned before, which you thought was right, no longer is in the same way. Now there's, there's something deeper, there's something more significant. This is the kind of 
tempting, seductive teaching that she was, it's the suggestions this character's making. That's all, yeah, I've got some deep things. Those deep things could have been, it's okay to sin, it's all right to compromise. It's all of that line of teaching again. Um, but that kind of comes in and it, and it can pollute. It pollutes um, a team where perhaps uh, a leader it can become incredibly disheartened because there'll be someone within the setting, within that team, not leading the team, but every time that kind of the suggestion and the direction is given, just, oh, well, that's not going to work, is it? Uh, in my experience, that doesn't work. Um, and, and suddenly there's this kind of a slight bragging quality. That, oh, right, okay. And, and so whoever's leading is kind of like the rugs pulled from under their feet every time. And what that can lead to is just, oh, I, like Ahab, I, I'm just, I'm just going to, I'm just going to abdicate responsibility. It's too much hard work to try to try and lead and try and give some direction into things when, when, when I'm just feeling, I'm feeling disheartened. <sighs> Tricky. So appearing spiritual, getting a following, but leading people astray. One more character, and then characteristic, and then we'll move on is fierce anger. This is a side of the Jezebelic spirit that Elijah encounters. He's just had a tremendous um, victory. He has challenged Ahab and all the false prophets of uh, Baal to a showdown on Mount Carmel. And there to call out on their God and to see if Baal brings fire down on this offering. And he alone, Elijah by himself, surrounded by hundreds of others, Elijah by himself is to call down on his God, the one true God of Israel, to see if God will send fire down on his sacrifice to then reveal who is God, who is ultimately um, the Lord. And so this takes place and all these prophets are, are crying out to Baal and absolutely nothing happens. Elijah stands alone and um, he even pours water all over um, the, the, the offering that he's about to sacrifice, praise and fire from heaven. All those other uh, prophets dealt with. A, a tremendous moment. It often comes out sometimes in, in the things we pray or sing. You know, oh, amazing, great stuff. What follows that is a moment of, of pure demoralizing fear. In 1 Kings 19, verse 2, Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. Now Elijah has just stood in massive confrontation with all of these people, and he's triumphed, he's, he's resisted, he's stood firm, but now this angry response via a messenger from Jezebel, not even saying it in person, and Elijah runs for his life, totally demoralized and dejected, despairing even of life itself. A fierce anger that's seeking to control. Each of these different aspects of the character all come back to this desire to control, this desire to gain power. And here it takes place with kind of this, this strong emotional reaction. Sometimes church life can be affected by strong emotional reactions 
emotional blackmail, anger that's used to control and manipulate. Oh, I just don't have the energy to respond anymore. If we try and address it, they just explode like always. I'm not sure it's worth it. I'm not cut out for this. God's anointed says. Let's just not go there. I don't think this is a situation that can be reasoned with. There's nothing that can be done. Demoralized. Can you see how through these different characteristics in 1 Kings, but also here in Revelation, can choke the life out of God's people? And Jesus is bringing this to his attention because he's saying there's, there's a way ahead, but just be aware. You've not been necessarily all that discerning, but I'm bringing this to your attention. Well, what's the way ahead then? One word. One word. Repent. Sin in any form is a poison which needs removing. Not something to be accommodated. Just wants to take over. It wants to dominate. Any a sin of any form. It just wants to dominate. It's not it's not satisfied with just this little bit. It wants to get a, a foothold in our lives. And if it can get a foothold, then it can get a stronghold. Strongholds are more difficult to shift, but everything when it's dealt with by repentance can be. Our natural response can often be to make allowances, excuse sin as a weakness and accommodate or rationalize it. Sin is basically deceptive. It's seducing, it's persuasive. This won't hurt anyone, it doesn't matter, it's only a small thing. Or we can be deceived into just wanting to rationalize things away. This is just the way I am. I've been through a lot. He or she just needs to accept that. I'm bound to react in that way because, because of what's happened before. And it can be this kind of deceptive, deceptive thing. Now, Jezebel is given time to repent. People in the church, it would seem, have been too uh, intimidated to confront the situation, but God nevertheless has been speaking um, to this person. I've given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. And the consequences for that stubborn refusal are severe. You know, remember this Jesus loves his church. The church is subject to Jesus' special, loving, shepherding attention. And because of that, the the consequences, the results of a stubborn refusal to repent are severe. He spells out what will happen. Those who commit adultery with her will suffer intensely, and I will strike her children dead, it says. I don't think that means meaning literally the, the children of that woman would be struck dead, but her followers, her spiritual dependents, those who look to her, those who are following um, this uh, individual in the life of the church in Thyatira. Um, but notice, Jesus is still offering the opportunity to repent. The opportunity to repent is still there. And that opportunity is the greatest blessing God gives us. For any one of us to have come to Jesus 
to have been forgiven of all our sins and to have a, a, an eternal destiny to look forward to in heaven, it began when we repented. That's a, that's a blessing. It's a blessing that God in his patience wants to draw us to the point of, of repentance. And this is what he's been doing in this situation. I, what bring, brings this home to me is the, is the personal story reading um, that someone has shared. Uh, as it happens, that the wife of a church leader sharing her testimony of how God brought her to a point of repentance in this, uh, on, on this very area where a, a Jezebelic spirit or character had developed uh, a mature Christian. She had spent a few years with her husband serving in another country, um, away from the home church where they were from. And uh, that had been a tough couple of years, serving in this other scene. They, they then return uh, to the home church. And obviously, in the course of a couple of years, things are going to move on. So she found that whereas you know, before she, she knew uh, what her roles were, she, um, uh, she was involved in different aspects of the life of the church, now she was finding, understandably, that, that others had stepped into those situations to serve. Um, and so that pressed an insecurity. You know, what's my role here? You know, there was a massive re- kind of culture shock in coming back uh, to the home seen, finding others that were now doing what she had done, feeling like she had no role, and therefore you know, insecurities had come to the fore. And she, she kind of traces it back, and she realizes, therefore, that that sowed the seeds of becoming jealous when other people were, were prominent in the life of the church, envious when others shone. She wanted to shine. She wanted, she wanted it to be evident to the church that she was shining, and so when other people were having encounters with the Holy Spirit or getting invited into different situations to speak, she was frustrated. She, she resented those things. She realized in hindsight how she was beginning to put people down in conversation, dismissing other people's gifting. She, was, she says herself that she was quick to perceive offense where none was meant. This anger reaction flaring up. But all too easily, bossy, domineering. She describes how she was controlling. She was very afraid to let go. She's very afraid to let someone else be in charge. And for that to be okay, that's legitimate, that's okay. So husband was a great guy. No husband or wife, for that matter, will be perfect. But, but she was scared. And therefore... Had this knot of tension, she describes, because she just never really felt that she could trust him. And so resistant, always fearing that the person in charge would get it wrong. Now that's in the, in the context of, of, a, of a church and also a marriage. These, these characteristics aren't kind of um, restricted to marriage. This is just one person's example. Now, as God got her attention and brought this out into the open for her, she was being drawn to repentance, and she was just asking God, what's, you know, what's been behind this? And she felt God just highlight a few things, um, and these are specific to her, but I, I mentioned them just for kind of completeness of the testimony, really. But she said there were two things, two memories God brought to mind. 
as to how, how maybe that, those insecurities had, had developed. When she thought about her parents, she always saw her mother in the foreground and her father in, in the background in a, in a more kind of hazy way. That's just the impression she had in her mind. It was a, her, her parents were, were loving Christian parents, but she kind of got the impression that her mother didn't entirely trust her father, and so normally she would make the decisions. If she, if she didn't make a decision, if it was the husband who made the decision, she would, one way or another, kind of overturn that um, in, in preference for, for her own uh, desire. So that was brought to mind. What was also brought to mind was a childhood friendship. As children, her and her friend would have appeared close, best friends. But the friend was domineering and demanding. And so the relationship was suffocating. She kind of wanted to get out of it. But she felt she couldn't get out of it. Until, that is, they went to different schools. She then promised never to yield control to another. She kind of looked back and saw that actually, from that moment onwards, it was a kind of a case of, well, no one else is going to be in charge of me again. I'll just be in charge of myself. And again, sowing sowing the seeds of what was later to become a bigger problem. It's almost like new circumstances and old insecurities that had never quite been dealt with before combined to bring out Jezebelic qualities. And she, she recognized she needed to repent. Now what her testimony shows wonderfully is that repentance is a good thing. Repentance is a way into, into a blessing. As I was kind of reading through or just mentioning some of those aspects to what that woman experienced, and this can be the case for, for men too, but that's not a happy life to live, is it? No one wants to have kind of a, a knot of tension because they want to be in control of everything themselves. She she wrote this as well, and I just want to quote from her story. As I repented and received God's forgiveness for living in a sinful attitude, I experienced the washing of the word, and a wonderful peace descended. God's love overwhelmed me. And in the following days, I became progressively aware that the old knots of resistance and tension had gone. I found I was truly and happily embracing my husband's leadership. I truly rejoiced when other people were successful instead of being jealous. I no longer felt driven by the need to be prominent. A new sort of happiness invaded me, a sense of peace. So again, it's just one person's testimony. But just hear those things. God's love overwhelms me. Those old knots of resistance and tension gone. Truly rejoicing when other people were successful. Not needing, not feeling a compulsion to kind of be, be prominent. There was a new sort of happiness. You know, oh, repentance means a weight being taken off our shoulders. Not a weight being placed on our shoulders. For some in the church in Thyatira, um, they, they've, uh, they're, they're kind of unscathed by this, 
line of teaching that, they, that has come. Jesus said to them in verse 24, Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I'll not impose any other burden on you. Only hold on to what you have until I come. Jesus, our wonderful shepherd, Jesus the Son of God, doesn't come to put heavy burdens on our shoulders. Repent. He comes to take heavy burdens off of our shoulders. Repent. Jesus is for his church. Jesus loves his people. That's why sometimes there are these moments where he says, here are some things. You need to discern. You need to repent. It writes... um, in verse 26, to him who overcomes and does my will to the end. That's the, that's the goal here. To, it's possible to overcome, to make a decision. I'm, I'm going to cut those ways of relating off. It's also kind of an ongoing attitude of zero tolerance, if you like. Uh, to him who overcomes and does my will to the end. It's not about my will. It's about Jesus' will. It's not about me anxiously and nervously trying to control all the different situations around me. It's about me acknowledging Jesus is in control. What this passage concludes with, again, as is often the case, are these wonderful promises for those who overcome and, 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 and for those who do the will of, of Jesus um, to the end says, I will give authority over the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my Father. I will also give him the morning star. You know, God's kingdom, ultimately God's kingdom in in paradise and heavenly glory, is not one where there will be absolutely no authority. Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Um, what God does in his kingdom is not just make sure oh, no one is in a position of authority. Um, he just makes sure that authority goes to the right people. And so for those who in humility kind of overcome these tendencies that we've been looking at and humbly looks to serve Jesus and do Jesus' will to the very end, Jesus says, I'll give you authority over the nations. You know, the Jezebel character wants to kind of get prominence, wants to be significant in a proud way, but in a humble way, Jesus says, no, I want to involve you in my kingdom. I will give, I'll give you, I'll give him the morning star. The morning star later on in Revelation is a, is a phrase that's used to describe Jesus. I'm going to give you Jesus. It's no longer you trying to shine. Look at me, look at me, look at me. It's no, Jesus is in you. You're shining. You're shining for him. You're in my kingdom. Again, church, my, my special attention is on you. My special love is for you. My encouragement, here are all the things that are good, loving, faithful, service and perseverance, doing more. Than, than you did at first. Jesus loves his church. 
Jesus loves us. Jesus doesn't want any of us to be polluted by what the enemy might just try and sow in. Jesus says, no, I'm, I'm God. All that stuff is just counterfeit. So don't go there. Come to me. As we were hearing in, in some of those prophetic words that were brought, keep, keep your eyes on me. You know, sometimes I, I show you things that are dark, beasts and weird stuff. Um, don't get preoccupied with that. Get preoccupied with me, the Ancient of Days, the Son of Man. I'm the Lord. I'm the one who's in ultimate control. If you give to me, if you give your life to me, if you give control for every aspect of your life over to God, your life is in good hands. The world says, make something of your life. Look after number one. It's okay to control and manipulate people in some situations because you've just got to make sure you get what you want. Make something of your life. Jesus says, make something of your life. Give it all to me. Allow me to hold your life in the palm of your hands. You know, sometimes, like the testimony that I read out, there can be situations where, yeah, real hurt has taken place. There are real memories that can cause us to think, no, it's, it's better if I keep control myself. It's better if I keep other people at arm's length. How, how dare they say that? Of course I was going to be angry. There can be these, these memories that we look back to and think, well, that, that was just that was tough, it's unpleasant. I don't want to be in that sort of situation again. Can I can I trust? the leaders of the church? Can I trust the person leading the team that I serve in? Can I, can I trust my husband who's leading the marriage? Can I, actually behind all those issues is, can I trust God? Is it okay if I give control of all of my life, holding nothing back? I surrender it all. I, I kind of abandon my will. It's all about your will, Jesus. That is a place where we get blessed, released from heavy weights that can be in our hearts or on our shoulders. Jesus doesn't want anything to thwart his church. Jesus loves his church. That's why sometimes he brings attention to some of these things. For some, it may not be specifically relevant to those who've not gone down the line of these so-called deep secrets. Just you know, hold on to what you have but to others, and where it is that God would just want to bring our attention, this issue of control, trying to keep control, trying to gain control, God would say, give it up, give it up. You know, the, the, the call to repentance, if you like, is not a walk of shame, ultimately. It's a walk, it's a walk to freedom. It's a, it's a walk into the life that actually God graciously and wonderfully wants us to have. Just so happens that life involves him being completely in charge and us being humble, saying, Lord, your will be done. Let's pray.